Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Today, we're going to party like it's 1999. And what a year it was. 99's biggest star was an overweight, cigar-smoking Don who loved a dodgy deal. No, not Sam Allardyce. It was Tony Soprano. We take a close look at February 99 as Manchester United and Arsenal kick lumps out of each other at a muddy Old Trafford. Dan's Maverick of the Week shares his name with a chocolate bar that's not for girls. And Ian Wright shows up for Brucey's bath to complain about Harry Redknapp. All this and we test Dan's encyclopedic football knowledge in Challenge Dan. So what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Richard Dunn playing right back today. He's fouled by Gaza. Silly foul by Mr. Fogg on the Tyne. Barnby, Hutchinson, Decor, and Matarazzi all fancy their chances. But there's only one winner. It's the big Italian. He runs up. He swings his left cap a boot at it. He goes and goal for Everton. A lovely set-piece strike for Marco Matarazzi. His first goal for the Toffees. Question marks over Burroughs' wall. Badly constructed by Cooper, Pallister, Musto, Stockdale, and Townsend. Hughes will be working on this on Monday morning at the training ground with a hungover Brian Robson. The Toffees normally the last to be picked from a tin of Caldy Street while Mark Swatcher is picking the ball out of the net again. It's Everton 4, Middlesbrough nil. Today I'm joined by our very own Alan Hansen and Jimmy Hill. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan and Mush the Matchman. Lads, how are we doing? Wasn't Steve. I'm just a wee bit confused who's Jimmy Hill between me and Dan. I'll let you work that one out for yourself. That's all right. <laughs> Looking forward to the pod. Good stuff. Lads, we also have a very, very special guest this week. This man is loopy nuts about Arsenal. He goes to bed every night cuddling his Gunnosaurus teddy and wearing his Thierry Henry pyjamas. It's our in-house Arsenal expert, Paul, the Iceman Fingledon. Iceman, how are we? I'm very good, Stephen. Pleasure to be here. Three absolute encyclopedias of football. Um, I feel very honoured and I'm very much looking forward to reviewing this fine season. Dan, can you remember this period of 99? I can indeed, Stephen. And uh, I had a regrettable purchase at the time. Um, it's giant shin pads. Uh, I've never been the quickest man and certainly wasn't the quickest kid. And I was slowed down e- even further in 1999 by a pair of oversized Sondico shin pads. Oh. Disaster. Does Sondico still exist as a company? Do they make balls? Uh, yes, they do. Sports Direct supply them. They prob- Newcastle probably used them as well. Yeah, oh, I remember those oversized ones. They were only for playing hockey, surely. I think they were. I think uh, a lot of young young footballers were conned into buying them. Must do you have any fond memories of 1999? It was our last year in primary school on the road to the big time. Memories of uh, getting rid of a few teachers that we did not get on with. <laughs> so, Iceman, what was life like in 99 for a young Paul? You know, I hadn't started drinking. I hadn't discovered women. 
I was picking my nose. I was more concerned about past me 11 plus than anything really. The Millennium bug was on the way. So there was a bit of nervousness in the air, but times were good. Football was good. It was going to be an incredible season, quite historic in many, many ways. And I'm sure we'll touch on that later. We had Keane versus Fiera. It was all bubbling to a head. And, you know, having the content of that on me 11 plus, times were quite stressful, to be honest. But it's great to look back on and look forward to, to doing it throughout this pod. Nice man, I can see you're wearing a fine Arsenal jersey today. Dan won't be happy, it's long sleeve. Can you describe what you've got on for us today? A wonderful Arsenal goalkeeper's jersey. It's dark navy and it has a nice red colour and a lovely red trim. It's got the old Arsenal badge. This is something maybe people of my age might remember, but not the, the new Arsenal fans, which I much prefer to the, the new one, which has been modernised. JVC are the sponsor, Iconic. I don't know what it stands for, to be honest. I once bought a TV, JVC, actually a couple of years back, and it was dodgy enough, so I think they've let their standards slip since they, <laughs> they sponsored Arsenal, to be brutally honest. But it looks like it'll keep you warm on a Tuesday night away, away to Stoke, really. It's a bit, it's basically a jumper rather than a goalkeeper top, so Dan certainly wouldn't like that. And it reminds you of one man, the iconic David Seaman. When he was wearing this top, he didn't have a ponytail, but a fine moustache, and what a fine keeper. Yeah, he was a fine keeper and then turned out to be a fine dancer on Strictly Come Dancing. Mush, what have you got on for us today? Yes, Steve. I am wearing the Coventry Away kit from 98-99. A bright yellow with purple stripes, a a striped round neck, a loud away kit, which was made by Leacock Sportif, sponsored by Azizu, the Japanese company who specialise in commercial vehicles, and give Coventry manager... We Gordon Strachan, a free 1999 trooper, but Gordon couldn't see over past the steering wheel. Players who were blessed to wear this shirt were retro Coventry men, Dave Burrows, Richard Shaw, Paul Telfer, Steve Froggett, a team of Gary Breens and Barry Quinn, a young George Botang, Aussie John Gaday mate Aloisi, Noel Whelan was top scorer that season, Doran Huckerby, the legend Gary McAllister, and even Gordon Strachan's cub, Gavin, wore this kit. The kit I'm wearing is Coventry Away in 98-99. And what a beautiful kit it is. Dan, I know it's a cold day, but you've got the robe on again. It's half 12, mate. What's underneath that robe? I've only got a robe on, Steve, because this jersey is an absolute cracker. Today, I am wearing the home kit of Tottenham Hotspurs from the 1998-99 season. Its design is white, of course, the classic Tottenham colour, with a navy trim and stripes on the sleeves, with a V-neck design colour. No buttons needed on this weapon. It's sponsored by Hewlett Packard, computer giants of the 90s, and also a possible name for a Star Trek captain, Hewlett Packard. I can imagine it now being said in an episode. The kit makers were Pony, giants of the 90s, sponsored the Neville brothers, West Ham, and also Southampton. Tottenham had a very good 1998-99 season when they were managed by George Graham. They reached the FA Cup semi-finals and they won the League Cup. This kit was worn by... Soulman Campbell, Sir Les Ferdinand, I Need the Physio, Darren Anderton, PFA Player of the Year, David Junilla, Tiny White Man, Jose Dominguez, and star of Street Fighter, Ramon Vega. Today, Steve, I'm wearing the Tottenham home kit from 98-99, and it is a cracker. God, it's very nice, Dan, and it's very white. Have you watched that with Daz? Only the best will do for this kit. We're obviously delighted that you're happy in your kit. There's a man here, uh, an ice man, who's shaking his head, disgusted that you have this on. Uh, ice man, what do you make of this kit? Um, I think it's disgusting, to be honest, Stephen. Um, I'm not sure if Dano's done this to antagonise me. 
you know, it's my first first appearance in the pod, and I thought it'd be quite welcoming, but clearly not. There's a bit of there's a bit of needle going on here, and I'm not happy at all. Well, you'll have plenty of time to get him back later on. Okay, so the preseason 98-99 had loads of interesting transfer business. There was lots of big signings, but this week we've decided to look at the best bargains and the worst bits of business. So this is transfer business. Yes, Stephen, thank you. And my five best bits of transfer business from the 1998-99 season are as follows. And at number five, it's Holmes Under the Hammer star Dion Dublin, who moved from Coventry to Aston Villa for £5.75 million. Dion was a hero at Coventry, had banged in the goals and earned his big move. Aston Villa having a very good 98-99 season as well, largely due to Dion scoring the goals and replacing the White York successfully. In at number four, he's back, he's bad, he's beautiful. It's Brian Dean, back from his year's holiday in Portugal with Benfica. And he was snapped up by Brian Robson's Middlesbrough for three million pounds. Brian would form a great partnership with Hamilton Record and really settle Middlesbrough back down into the life in the Premiership. In at number three, and it's an absolute bargain, it's Nobby Solano, who moved from Boca Juniors to Newcastle United for £2.4 million. Nobby Solano was an excellent player, a fantastic uh, crosser of the ball, a scorer of free kicks, a provider of goals, and he would do really well at Newcastle, loved by teammates and fans alike, and a keen saxophone man. Mush, one of your lovers here, Nobby Nuts, making his Premier League uh, debut. Were you happy to see the little Peruvian strut his stuff at St James's? No, because I don't like St James's Park. They need to get over the sexy football days. But I do like Nobby, especially as we Nobby Nuts. And also great to have another musical player, Dan. Um, because am I right in saying Dion Dublin also played a sax? He did indeed, Mush. And, you know, I'm hoping somewhere along the line that the two of them got together and jammed. I think Dion Dublin actually created his own instrument as well. I'm not sure what it is. It's like some sort of type of drum, but you can he definitely created his own he instrument. He did. He did, Stephen. It's called the Doob, and it's got its own website, and you can buy it, uh, order it, and uh, contact Dion Dublin on his own website, thedoobbox.com. In at number two, and this is a wonderful piece of business from um, Southampton, signing James Beatty from Blackburn Rovers for £1 million. BD was part of a player exchange deal that worked out better for Southampton than it did for Blackburn. BD would have a great career at Southampton, later on in a big move to Everton, but would form a great partnership with Marion Pahars and Matt Letizia in the hole behind them. And Southampton would go on to have some of their best seasons in the Premier League with him leading the line. In at number one, it's a brilliant piece of business and it's Paolo Di Canio who moved from Sheffield Wednesday to West Ham United for £1.5 million. Paulo would bang in the gold for West Ham, supply the likes of Canute, Defoe down the years, help young players like Lampard, Carrick and Rio Ferdinand. And it was another masterstroke, along with many masterstrokes, by Harry Redknapp. That completes my best bits of transfer business for the summer of 1998. Paulo De rightly or wrongly, Iceman, has made um, Nigel Winterburn look quite cowardly and has lost his hard man image. He worked for a long time to create that hard man image, playing alongside the likes of Tony Adams, Steve Bowl, Lee, Lee Dixon, you know. They're a tough, tough uh, back four, but when Paolo came calling and gave, gave Nigel a wee push, he went flying. It's like an iconic moment in Premiership history and one Nigel 
or Palo probably don't want to look back on too fondly, but we'll not forget it. Mush, have you got the worst bits of business of the 98-99 pre-season window? Number five, Silvo Marriage to Newcastle from Dynamo Zagreb for £5.2 million. A part of the Croatian squad which finished third at the 98 World Cup. He was the first Croatian to appear in FA Cup final. Well, he was signed by Rude Hullett to play sexy football. Well, the attacking midfielder did not get the memo. A bit like the rest of the Newcastle squad. 23 appearances in 16 months, zero goals and only one assist. Number four, Pierre Luigi Casaraghi from Lazio to Chelsea for £7 million. He had fallen out of Spengorn Erksen's plans after helping Lazio win the Coppa Italia. His time at West London proved luckless as only one goal in 14 appearances. He suffered a bad injury after a collision with Trinidad Roman Shaka Hislop, causing cruciate ligament damage. No fewer than 10 operations couldn't help fix it. Unfortunately, this would end his playing days and he was released by Chelsea in 2000. Chelsea received an insurance payout, which Casaraghi criticised Chelsea for not helping him, and he explored legal action for unpaid wages after his contract was ripped up. Number three, John Hartson from West Ham to Wimbledon for a club record fee of £7 million. His time at the Dons was marred by injury and a part of the Wimbledon side that got relegated the following season. He showed up on his first day wearing an Armani suit, Big mistake with the crazy gang. He went out to train before and was shown to the press conference wearing shorts as Ben Thuggish Thatcher and Jason Yule with a jewel burnt his suit. He joined Coventry on a pay-as-you-play deal in January 01 as he couldn't help them either as they ended up getting relegated. Iceman, what do Arsenal fans make of John Hartson? John Hartson had a brief stay of Arsenal. He's, he's not really remembered because he didn't do a huge pile. He was a quality footballer, but I'm not sure he quite suited their state of play. They obviously had strikers, you know, they had Ian Wright in there, Alan Smith around that time. So I don't think John got too many minutes, but he's a player I've always liked. And it's a pity that he didn't really do more for Arsenal. Sometimes when a player goes to a club, it just doesn't work. Number two. Sean Dundee for £2 million to Liverpool. Played a lot like Crocodile Dundee as he only had three appearances all from the bench for Liverpool and didn't hit the back of the net once. Highly rated in Germany that the Germans put pressure on him to become a German citizen. Gerard Houllier and Roy Evans were joint managers at the time of Dundee's signing but when Houllier got full control of management he slated Dundee publicly and wouldn't even play him when Liverpool had only one fit striker in Carl Heinz Riedler at one point. The final nail in Dundee's coffin at Liverpool when he was told to report back for summer pre-season training three days later than the rest of the squad and met him train with big-time Charlie Paulins while the rest of the squad jetted off on a tour. Dundee was sold to Stuttgart for £1 million a month later. My number one worst bit of business is Kevin Davis from Southampton to Blackburn for £7.5 million. 27 appearances in all competitions and only two goals, both coming against Charlton Athletic. A good debut season for Davis at the Dell, seeing the turtle dove lover Roy Duncan's toy chest Hodgson lure him to Ewood Park with the prospect of UEFA Cup football. An awful season with one goal and Blackburn being relegated after winning the league only four years previous. Davis would go on to have a successful career, especially at Bolton under Big Sam. He scored more goals against Blackburn four than he did for them. 
He now is a football agent helping players getting deals with no bongs and brown envelopes involved. And that concludes my worst bit of business for the 98-99 season, Steve. Dan, I don't know about you, but I only associate Kevin Davies with Bolton. So, you know, when you're mentioning these other clubs, it's quite hard to believe that he actually played for anyone else. He first came to my mind. He played for Chesterfield during their great run in the FA Cup in the 96-97 season. And he was, I think he was only 17 or 18 at that time. They got all the way to the semi-final replay with Middlesbrough. He's bought off the back of that by Southampton. Then King of the Turtle Doves. Gets scouting him. He, he gives Southampton Beatty and takes Davies. So just a terrible bit of business all around. And I'm not too sure what Roy Hodgson was thinking across the summer of 1998. But uh, Davies wasn't the only dud he bought. And the see Blackburn Rovers go on to get relegated in 98-99 was shocking at the time. I would not have seen that coming. Even talking about it now, you know, how a team can win the Premier League and then three and a half years later be relegated baffling okay great stuff lads we will be back with our first game and that is Leicester City versus Sheffield Wednesday from February 1999 but first here is a lovely little goal from the Premier League 99 can Charlton take advantage of the extra man after Jamie Carragher's red card Alan Kerbisley is thrown on former red and former R&B star John Barnes free kick to Charlton after a silly push from Fowler on Chris Powell Steve Brown with a lumpy free kick. Picks out Robertson. His first time ball into the box. Steve Staunton should deal with this, but no, he's made a pig's blanket out of it. Can he clear his eyes? No, no, it's a goal. Keith Jones within seconds of going down to 10 men. Liverpool have had a horror show and the main ghost is Steve Staunton. Jones celebrates with Pringle. No, not the tasty snack. A huge goal in Charlton's survival bid. It's Charlton 1, Liverpool 0 here at the Valley. OK, we're back and our first game is a mid-table matchup between Leicester City and Sheffield Wednesday. And I believe, Mush, your friend Chip is back to cover the game for us. Yes, Steve, my close friend Chip, a top football journalist, an absolute passionate football man, not so good at a five-a-side game and indoor, I would never call him up. But he's my friend and yours. It's Chip. Hey guys, I'm back and it's 1999. This week, I watched the English Premier League conference game between Leicestershire City and Sheffield Wednesday. I can't believe they named a soccer franchise after Wednesday Adams from the Adams family. That's creepy and cookie. Did you know that Leicestershire was sponsored by the potato chips Walkers? Does Gary Vinegar still do those commercials? That guy would literally do anything for money. Anyway, I digress. Let's run through the rosters. In goal for Leicestershire was my homeboy, Casey Keller. Casey, bro, you rocked the sweatpants during this game, man. The Leicestershire defense was Taggart, Ullathorne, Walsh, and Elliott. The offense lined up with Muzzy Izzet, Neil Lemon, Steve Gupgup, and Andy Impey, which left tight end, Emil Husky, and Fox's veteran, Tony Cotton, up top. Wednesday had Cernicek in the onion sticks. Safety players, Hinchcliffe, Tom, Walker, and Atherton, while quarterback Vim Yonk was surrounded by Ruddy, Sonner, and Alexanderson. That left their two shooters with Andy Booth and Benito Carbone. The Foxes had the better of the first quarter. Steve Gupgup broke free down the left and provided an amazing lob pass to find Husky 
but the big guy got his cleats caught in the mud, man, and he ended down on both knees at the 20-yard line. What a dumbass! Minutes later, Tony Cotton wasted a great chance from a muzzy is it through ball. His punt was so high over the bar, I think the ball ended up in the parking lot. 0-0 at the halftime show. Wednesday must have taken advantage of the free potato chips at Filbert Street as they stormed out for the second quarter. Within three minutes, they had the first score on the board when Booth's weak shot was only parried by Casey Keller. And the Dutch destroyer, Vim Yonk, was there to convert the soccer ball into the end zone. Casey, bro, what were you doing here, man? You sucked. I think he was full of tater tots because he could barely move to save the rebound. And Casey's day went from bad to worse on the 78th minute when Alexanderson played a ball to Yonk who dummied it for Carbone on the edge of the area. And Benito curled it past Keller to hit a home run. 2-0, Wednesday Adams. The Wednesday fans were so pumped behind the goal, and I couldn't help but notice they were all wearing sweatpants and sneakers. Oh my God, those guys must be really healthy. It finished, Foxes nil, Wednesday Adams two. Leicestershire coach Martin O'Neill was asked who was to blame for the defeat after the game, and he named and shamed Robbie Savage even though Robbie Savage wasn't included in the matchday squad. Rumors also surfaced that O'Neill had banned the entire roster from eating potato chips as he found Frank OG King Sinclair in the shower eating a multi-bag of prawn cocktail after the game. Leicestershire dropped to 13th and Wednesday move up to 14th in the conference. And now I'm off to watch my beloved MLS franchise, the Chicago Fire. I'm chipped on Levy. It's back to you in the studio, Simon. Mush, I've asked you this before, but where did you meet Chip Dunleavy? We were in a local newsagents and we both reached to get the latest edition of 442. And Chip was inquiring, what is 442? And then I had a good chat with him and told him, look, there's no linebackers in this, no wide receivers. It's 44 effing 2. And then I just got to know him from there. Oh, that's brilliant. Bit of education there for Chip as well. Fair play to you, mate. Dan, this was a tight mid-table Premier League affair between Leicester and Sheffield Wednesday. And looking at the two 11s, you probably would have fancied Leicester going into it. I would have fancied Leicester at home at Filbert Street. Uh, Martin O'Neill and Leicester were having a good season. Had made it, were on their way to making it to the 1999 League Cup final. They had a solid base. So I would have fancied uh, Leicester at home on this day, yeah. What did you make of Vim Yonk in the Sheffield Wednesday side? He seemed to control a lot of the play. Was he a touch of class? He was a touch of class and I'm very, very surprised that he went to Sheffield Wednesday after having a brilliant France 98 for Holland. He, he played all the games leading up to the semi-final and was first choice above uh, Clarence Seedorf and the Dutch team at the time. So for Sheffield Wednesday to get him was a real surprise and he gave that cool, experienced head you know, done the workload to free up Carboni in front of him, you know. Um, so, Yonk was a really, really solid bit of business from Sheffield Wednesday. Carboni scores a lovely goal where he just curls it past yeah. Keller, you know. It, it seemed to go in slow motion. It was so good. Is Carboni someone who might make the Maverick list later on in the season? Oh, oh he certainly was, uh, Benito. He's very similar to the Canio and um, other link men of that time in the way that he played. Left or right, through the middle, great touch, score of wonderful goals. He had a really good Premier League career. 
and he took on the load when the Canio, you know, was shipped out from Sheffield Wednesday. To see them two together regularly would have been a brilliant thing. But the Canio moves on. Carboni has to pick up the slack. He's got Andy Booth acting as the target man, so he can be the be free. And it showed in the goals he scored and the way that he played. He was a brilliant. He was he was a brilliant little player, and certainly I think was a player capable of playing for some of the top clubs. Mush, uh, matchman, who were you keeping close tabs on during this game? A couple of big hard men at the back, Jerry Taggart and Matt Elliott. But uh, I was surprised to see Frank Sinclair on the bench. But on closer inspection, in no way, Frank the OG King had uh, scored two consecutive own goals. One at Haybury, where Arsenal won 2-1. And the following week at, uh, at home against Chelsea, where he beat Torrey Andre, flew to the ball, but then he smashed it into his own net. So that's why Frank the OG King was on the bench. Dan, before we move on, I just want to touch on Emil Heskey. You know, he was sort of building a name for himself here. He was a young, vibrant striker here at Leicester, uh, really prospering under Martin O'Neill. Yeah, O'Neill uh, put a lot of faith in him. And I think Leicester is the only club where Heskey's been able to fully express himself. He was a young powerhouse, lightning quick, scored some great goals, had a poacher in Tony Cotty as his partner. I think when Heskey moved on to Liverpool, Villa, Wigan, Birmingham, he was always doing the work for others, so wasn't fully able to reach his possible potential. He terrorised the very best in the Premier League at the time. You know, he would have been a handful for Stam, Adams, Campbell, Pallister, whoever it was he played against in the late 90s. And he earned his big move to Liverpool there, but... No, I think Heskey was a really good player, underrated and unfairly criticised um, as his career went on. My madman of the week is Duncan Ferguson, or better known as Big Dunk. Duncan Disorderly or Drunken Duncan. Big Duncan's aggressive manner and thuggish playing style earned him nine red cards in his career. Eight of these in the Premier League, which is a joint record along with Richard Dunn and Paddy Vieira. Duncan Ferguson was the human fireball. He lived it, he fought it, he breathed it out there on and off the pitch. A six foot four towering battering ram was a true fighter as most of his sendings off were for punches, elbows, headbutts, and even a teeth-gritting strangulation of Spurs' Stefan Fraud. He may have been sent off for a few more early baths only for refs to be scared of his alpha male presence and his stir, which once left teammate Alessandro Pistoni in tears. The Italian told Ferguson to F off after Ferguson broke the British transfer record in 1994. For £4 million, he near broke the skull of John McStay. The ref didn't see it, but the SFA did. A 12-game ban, which he missed the rest of the season. To add salt to the wound, he was convicted for assault for this on-the-field Glasgow kiss. A three-month prison sentence for Duncan Disorderly. An awful time at Rangers, which was his own fault. But he was given a lifeline in October of 94. Everton, who were struggling at the bottom of the Carling Premiership, Manager Mike Walker required the thuggish services of Ferguson on loan for the rest of the season. Well, Big Duncan took this lifeline and he applied a strong vice-like grip on it. And he played a vital role on helping the Toffees Roadhouse kick themselves away from relegation trouble. 
He also helped Everton win the FA Cup final. He scored a hat-trick of headers against Bolton Wanderers and became the first player in the Premier League to score a trio of headers in one game. Big Duncan using his big nut. He was then sold to Newcastle in 1998 for £8 million after establishing himself as a very dangerous target man in more ways than one. This deal Ferguson and Everton manager Walter Smith knew nothing about until it was completed. Big Duncan then demanded a £1 million loyalty payment for not asking to leave the club. Controversy in 2004 as he was accused of racially abusing Fulham's Lewis Boamorte. This was dismissed by the FA for a lack of evidence. Later in that year, he came off the bench only to be sent off within 10 minutes for another flying elbow, this time at Herman Herodeson, the victim. In the 05-06 season, another red card, this time for violent conduct against Wigan Athletic. After the game, Big Duncan confronted fantasy football bargains, Paul Shorner and Pascal Chimbonda. This resulted in a seven-game ban for Duncan. His international career, he only earned seven caps, he refused international selection after 1997, partly in protest against his treatment by the SFA after his conviction for his assault and the 12-game ban he received. Rightly so. Only highlight for Scotland was an overhead kick, which he smashed against the crossbar in a friendly against these Germans. Big Duncan has been victim of a few burglary attempts. As in 2001, two burglars, who I'll refer to them as Harry and Marr, broke into Ferguson's home. Big Dunk was having none of it, and he confronted Harry and Marv. You want some? Harry managed to flee, but Marv was caught by Duncan's web of rage, which led to Marv spending three days in hospital. Both men were sentenced to 15 months prison. Marv, fresh out of prison, with a new wet band, and Marv attacked Duncan. Big mistake! Duncan disorderly hospitalized Marv, who tried to get Big Duncan charged with assault. This was dismissed as there was not enough evidence. Big Duncan has four convictions for physical altercations. One, the one-way playing for Rangers. Two, he fought the law and the law won. Well, actually, he headbutted a policeman and received a £100 fine for this and a £20 fine for breach of the peace. An absolute bargain. He had a couple of taxi rank scuffles. Big Duncan was just trying to get a black cab home so he could enjoy a late night kebab. But he took no prisoners and kicked a supporter on crutches earning him a £200 fine. He also had an altercation with a fisherman. But it wasn't all bad for Duncan as his honours include a Scottish Youth Cup. First man to score a hat-trick of headers in the Premier League. Has most goals in the Premier League for a Scottish player. He won the Scottish Cup. He won the FA Cup. He also won Player of the Month. In February in 1985, 98 goals and 360 appearances across an injury hit career and considering he was suspended for a lot of it and missed a lot of games and not to mention he was in prison for a stretch as well. A decent return. He's an Everton cult hero who had a spell as caretaker manager and was unbeaten. He has all his UEFA licenses. We can see Big Duncan most weekends going mad on the sideline as Everton's assistant manager. My mad bot of the week is Duncan Ferguson. Camionato. De Calcio. Italiano. So now it's time for our Euro match of the week, and it's another cracker from Syria. It's Juventus 
versus Parma. And standing by is our very own James Richardson. It's Daniel McIntyre. Dan, you look very cosy there. The paper in front of you. And a fine dessert. What are you eating today? Today, Steve, I went for Knickerblocker Glory, covered in sauce and wavers with jelly and cream. What a treat. And what happened in this game between Juventus and Parma? Yes, Stephen, an absolute treat. The Stadio Deli Alpi, two of the best teams in Serie A in the 98-99 season and big rivals in the 90s as well, all through the decade. Juventus would line up with Angelo Peruzzi in goals. Zoran Murkovic, Mark Giuliano, Paolo Monturlo and Passato at the back. A midfield four of Angelo Delivio, Alessio Tacanardi, Edgar Davids and Zinedine Zidane. With Juan Isnader and Daniel Fonseca, the front two in the absence of both Pippo Inzaghi and Delboy Piero. Also for Juventus, Antonio Conte and Didier Deschamps were only fit enough for a place on the bench. Such was the strength they had. For Parma, an all-star 11 for their 98-99 side. In goals Buffon, a back four of Lillian Chiram, Nestor Sensini, Fabio Cannavaro, Diego Fuser, midfield Stefano Fiore, Dino Baggio, Antonio Benarivio, Juan Sebastian Veron, and a front two of good friends and fantastic players, Hernan Crespo and Enrico Chiesa. The home side had the better of the opening minutes as Juve's French maestro Zidane began tormenting Parma from the start. He saw a lot of the ball in the opening 10 minutes as he attempted to unlock Parma's star-studded back lane. It was no surprise when Tacanardi opened the scoring with just 15 minutes on the clock. The Italian midfielder picked the ball up some 35 yards from goal and let rip the ball flying past Buffon, who had absolutely no chance with the ball hitting the top corner, giving Juventus the lead and Tacanardi his third goal of the season. With Parma struggling to settle, the hosts had chances to double their lead, but Parma managed to weather the early storm. Lillian Churam should have squared the game up, but his header from a Dino Baggio corner went wildly over the bar as Parma began to ease back into the game. Zidane continued to pull the strings for Juve. His sublime through ball sent Fonseca on his way, but the Uruguayan couldn't get past the huge frame of Buffon in the Parma's goal. Juventus could regret missing this chance, and indeed, missing Inzaghi and Del Piero. With the first half drawing to a close, Parma turned the game on his head. The deadly duo of Crespo and Chiesa would combine to give Parma an unimaginable half-time lead. Chiesa's magnificent low cross made it impossible for Peruzzi and Paolo Monturo to defend as Hernan Crespo bravely got between the two to square the game up. Just four minutes later, a hopeful long clearance from Fabio Cannavaro set Chiesa clear after some shocking and unfamiliar Juventus defending. Chiesa rounded the oncoming Peruzzi and his big hurry chest to slide the ball home into an empty net, putting the visitors 2-1 up. In five minutes of absolute madness, Parma scored a third goal with Juan Sebastian Veron's free kick floating into the back post where Antonio Benarivio was unmarked and the little fullback headed the ball back across goal for Crespo to head home his second of the game and give Parma a 3-1 half-time lead. Parma, full of confidence, came out flying for the second half. Crespo nearly got his hat-trick, a neat move down Parma's right, started by Lillian Chiram, would eventually see Crespo through on goal, only to be denied by a smart save about time, Peruzzi. Crespo would get the better of Peruzzi and complete his hat-trick, however, with the Argentinian frontman doing it in fine style. Stefano Fiore got the better of Zidane before the ball made its way out to Veron, 
whose low, hard cross found his fellow countryman, Crespo, at the back post, flicking the ball home with his heel to put Parma 4-1 up with a half an hour to play. Absolute collapse from Juventus. Marcello Lippi reacted by putting on Thierry Henry and Antonio Conte for a Schneider on Montero. Parma were also busy on the bench, taking off the outstanding Chiesa and putting on Mario Stanic to beef up the midfield and see out the game. Lippi's changes seemed to breathe a little bit of life back into the old lady, particularly Henri's pace on the left. His snapshot was easily dealt with, however, by Buffon. A magnificent first-time ball from Zidane put Fonseca through on goal, and the Juventus number 11, cool as you like, lifted the ball over Buffon, who was flying off his lane in a desperate bid to keep the three-goal cushion intact. If only Fonseca could have done this in the first half, when the pressure was really on. As the game drew to a close, Parma could and really should have made it five. Substitute an Argentina legend, Abel Balbao. How was he on the bench? What a team they had. And Hernan Crespo broke through. However, Balbao would drag his shot wide instead of playing in Crespo. As the Juventus Ultras began setting the stands of the Deli Alpi alight in disapproval, referee Robert Bodgie brought the game to a close as Parma went out easy. 4-2 winners on the day. What a treat this game was to watch back. Fantastic players on show and an excellent, excellent three points for an ever-improving Parma side. 4-2 Parma at the Stadio Deli Alpi, Stephen. Thank you, James. Uh, I mean, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Um, <laughs> Mush, this was an absolute treat of a game. What did you make of Juventus without Inzaghi and Del Piero? Definitely missed the offside king and Del Boy. Takanari with an absolute screamer, but I was more worried about their defending in this game. Uh, as Crespo punished them big stay. How do you think Filippo and Zaghi would get on now with VAR? 63 appearances and zero goals. This was uh, the real emergence of a brilliant Parma team. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the back five here and three of the back five would probably make most people's world all-time world 11s with Buffon, Churam and Cannavaro. Oh, Parma were brilliant all through the 90s. Very unlucky not to win a Serie A title. And as you say, they had world-class players in their team. They probably had seven or eight world-class players there. You know, um, the three men you've mentioned, Chiesa, Crespo, Baron, uh, Stefano Fiore for a spell as well was world-class. He'd, he'd move on later on. I think uh, the trouble Parma had was just keeping all the players, you know, once you come close and you miss out on a few trophies, the big names will want to move on and try and try and get some success medal-wise. But at this time, they were flying, and on any given day, they would have hammered anybody. Mush mentioned um, Del Piero and Inzaghi missing mm. there and uh, defensive problems for Juventus. Is the fact that those two players weren't missing also showed how much work they did off the ball? Absolutely. I think uh, Inzaghi, straight away, he probably doesn't even have to move but he has Cannavaro's attention for 90 minutes. You know, Cannavaro probably wouldn't have talked too many steps without looking to see where Pippo was because <laughs> he was always always lurking about the goal. Del Piero, Zidane he was the World Player of the Year at the time, but that was off a World Cup final performance. Del Piero was Juventus' main man. He was ruled out for the season, and that knocked them for six. They struggled that, that year. They struggled in Europe... Um, as well in terms of going for the Champions League they would be beating the semi-finals so they were big losses as well back to what Mush was saying I think the Champs was missed on the day the protection that the the old water courier gave Montero and Juliano you could see that as well so 
maybe tacking Artie and David were a bit more box to box. They needed that they needed that man in front of the back four. So they were certainly missing players on the day, but you can't take anything away from Parma. To go to Juventus and score four goals is pretty good going. Parma went on to win the UEFA Cup. Is that right this year? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they won um, it in great style as well. And there's a bit of controversy surrounding this. I don't know if you remember a video would emerge of Fabio Cannavaro putting suspicious injections into his legs before that UEFA Cup final. Um, so there was controversy around him doping. Well, I think, you know, that went with it, Lee, Italian football at the time. Now, Cannavaro just could have been getting an injection for hamstring injuries, some muscle problems. I'm not going to accuse Cannavaro of doing anything, but, you know, that there was doping scandals in the early noughties in Italy. So I suppose people just can jump on that when they see it because it's an Italian club. But personally, Cannavaro was never charged with anything and Parma weren't either. So you just move on. And on the night of the UEFA Cup, you're talking about the, the tore apart Marseille in the final and, and fully deserved their win. Chiesa's son now, it's come full circle, is actually on loan at Juventus and banging them in for them. Yeah, uh, he's a, he's actually a brilliant player and a great signing and football manager for any football manager players out there. Get him bought. Uh, he works out well. Uh, no, it's great to see this. Some, like Chiram's son's playing in France now. You have Chiesa's son playing, you know, it's in the jeans. The spawn of the legends continue. Yeah, it continues and long may it continue. I remember a famous interview with Gary Neville where he's shocked when he looks at the TV and sees that Juventus have qualified from the group. Mm. I was then shocked to see that they actually finished seventh in Serie A. Well, I think that's how much they missed Del Piero. I mean, that, that is one, like, one player missing the whole season and he's your best player and he was Juventus' best player at that time. I know Zidane, Davids and, and Zaghi, and, but Del Piero was the maestro in that team. He was their leader as well. He was their young captain. Just a fall from grace. And probably that team as well, the likes of Deschamps and a few others, coming coming to the going back down the hill, you know, and a few other teams uh, coming up through the ranks. So every team has their cycle. And maybe that was this was the beginning and the end of this Juventus cycle. Now, Mush the Matchman, have you got the rest of the Round 20 Serie A results for us? Yes, indeed, Stephen. Here is the rest of the Round 20 Serie A scores. Bologna 3, Bari 1. Signori, Anderson and Kolyvanov with the goals for Bologna. Gunnarsson with the goal for Bari. Fiorentina 0, SC Milan 0. Inter Milan 5. Empoli won. Ponytail Roberto Baggio with a goal. The Yellow Weasel Diego Simeone and Maverick Jokiev with a hat-trick. Carparelli with Empoli's goal. Vicenza won. Piacenza, no. Ambrosetti with Vicenza's goal. Lazio, three. Perugia, nil. Big Christian Vieri with a goal. And Salas with a brace. Sampdoria, nil. Calori, nil. Vicenza, three. Roma won. Rocoba, Manero and Ballerin with Vicenza's goals, while Roma's goal was scored by Di Baggio. That concludes the rest of the Serie A score, Steve. We will be back with a very special edition of our quiz. It's Challenge Dan. But first, here's another lovely goal from February 1999. Palmer winner free. Davids with a takedown on Dino Baggio. Could David see who he was tackling through them goggles like a young Cyclops? 
One Sebastian Vron sporting a cheeky goatee directs the free kick to the edge of the UV18. Finds Antonio Bonino. He heads it across goal. And up pops Crespo with a header. Goal! Crespo stunned Juventus. He sprung up to head home. Montero and Julio defending like an old lady. It's not even half time and Palmer lead 3-1 at the Stadio dell'Alpi. Challenge Dan. 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 Welcome to Challenge Dan, the quiz where our guest puts Dan's football knowledge to the test in order to win some top prizes. Mush, please introduce our competitors. In the green and gold corner, weighing 122 pounds. He's referred to as the Featherbed Falcon, the Dutch Destroyer. He once told Chris Tarrant that he didn't need any lifelines and question marks over, is he Sue Barker's love child? It's Dano Mag! And in the red corner, weighing 131 pounds, he's referred to as the Tempo Road Tiger. Fearless Fingleton, so cool they call him the Iceman, and he once broke the mastermind chair because he was that damn good. It's Paul Fingleton! Let me tell you what you are playing for today, lads. We are playing for the top 10 PS1 sports games in the games charts of 1999. Iceman, for every question that Dan gets wrong, you will win a game. At the end of the 10 questions, you can decide if you want to keep your games or gamble them on one last killer question to win our star prize, which is a PS1 console. If Dan gets your killer question right, though, you leave with absolutely nothing. You understand? I understand, but um, do you have any Super Nintendo games there, Stephen? No? No, we thought your brother already would have that for you. <laughs> I think you're right. Mario Kart. Dan, are you feeling confident? I'm a bit nervous today, Steve. I've took the foot off the gas in recent weeks, so I'm hoping to bounce back today and um, get the confidence back up again. Okay. Iceman, are you ready? I've never been more ready. Great stuff. So question one is for ISS Pro Evolution Soccer. Oh, I want this game. Who sponsored Chelsea in the 98-99 season? Autoglass. That is correct. Get in there. 1-0 Dan. Game number two is for WCW Backstage Assault. <laughs> what a game. <laughs> Come on, nice man. Who won? The player of the season in the 98-99 Premier League season. David Ginola. That is incorrect. It was Dwight York. 1-1. One, one. Question three is for LMA manager. Oh, a classic game. What was the scoreline on the last day of the season to seal the title for United? And who was it against? Manchester United 2. Tottenham Hotspurs 1. Very good, Dan. That's correct. Dano has seen the away goal and he has raised it. Good question. He's good. Question four is for one of Fingy's favourite sportsmen. It's Tony Hawk's skateboarding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a game. Who managed Charlton Athletic that season? Alan Kerbishley. That's correct. Go on, Kerbs. Question five is for Knockout Kings. (laughs) Lovely. What a game. Stay cool, Ace Man. You've got this. Who sponsored West Ham 
that season? Oh, could have been in between sponsors here. Not a hundred percent sure, but I'm gonna go Dr. Martin's. It's correct, it was Dr. Yes, get in there. I think you, you think of Palo de Canio when you think of Dr. Martin's and that's uh, sure. I think yeah, that that was what it was there. Question six is for Anna Kornikova's Smash Court Tennis. Come on, nice man. So who won the player of the month in February nineteen ninety-nine? Oh, question. Gonna be a complete guess. You're gonna have a punt, and I'm gonna say Nicholas Anelka. It's correct. Yes! <laughs> Nick the Greek. Dan has went five-one up. Come on, Ice Man, you need to get back into this. Question seven is for NBA shootout. Who finished top goal scorer in the 98-99 season? Oh, this could have been joint. Was this the joint year? Torn between three here. Uh, Jimmy Floyd has the bank. Is correct. He yeah. is storming away. It's 6-1. Number eight is for the game. This is football. Let's be having you, Dano. Name a team who's relegated in the 98-99 season. An old an old Premier League retro. Uh, Nottingham Forest got relegated, I think. They did. Took a fair few hammerings that year. It's 7-1. Question nine. Is for the game WWF Attitude. Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to have some attitude after this quiz because it's not going very well for me, is it? <laughs> Shocking. Come on, nice man. Who managed Everton in the 98 99 season? Walter Smith. Walter Smith is correct. It's 8 1. Full speed ahead, Donald. Fingy, if you get the next question right, it will be 8 2, which we know is one of your favourite scorelines <laughs> of all time. <laughs> Way to kick him on when he's down, Stephen. You know, I may do a grovel or here. Question 10 is for FIFA 99. Oh, I think we both want this one. Burkham was on the cover. I need it. I don't want it. I need it. Come on, nice man. In what stadium did Coventry City play that season? Coventry. Come to me, Coventry. Road. Highfield Road. Highfield Road is correct. Yes. It's 9 1. Oh, my goodness. Don't worry though, Iceman, it's not over for you just yet. You can decide to take your game, which is WCW Backstage Assault. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can give Dan one killer question to win all 10 games on the PS1 console. Before you decide, Mush, what do you think he should do? Should he gamble? Gamble, 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 gamble. You, you've heard what the matchman wants you to do, Paul. What are you going to do? We're going to gamble. We're yes, going to gamble. we're going <laughs> to gamble. Tense moment here in the Jumpers for Gold Post studio. Paul has decided he's going to gamble with his killer question. Take it away, Iceman. Good luck, Daniel. May the best man win. You too, Iceman. Who scored his 100th goal for Liverpool against Southampton in a 7-1 win in January 1999? Three men, I feel. I've got to go with the main man. I'm going to go Robbie Fowler. Robbie Fowler is correct. It's a sweep. He's won 9 1 and got the killer question. Iceman, like most Arsenal seasons, you leave with absolutely nothing. (laughs) It's match of the week. Bloody hell. 
Hello and welcome to Match of the Week. The game has just finished at Old Trafford between Manchester United and Arsenal, but don't worry, we've got the matchman standing by at a cold and wet and muddy Old Trafford. Matchman, what has happened at Old Trafford? Yes, Steve, this midweek treat followed on from Valentine's weekend by offering us a raunchy Red Devils versus a Junisiqua Gunners. Well, there was no love lost between these two title titans. Nicholas Sebastian Onelka, his early goal at the start of the second half was cancelled out by the artist formerly known as Andy Cole with a header. A title decider in February, please behave tabloids. This was two fine teams serving up a trigo at the top of the table on a soggy old Trafford turf. This match was a heavyweight battle with the undercard of Ferguson versus Wenger, Vieira versus Keane and Sharp Fucam versus JVC all adding to the stakes. The best attack in the league, United, who had hit the net no fewer than 54 times in 24 league games, while Arsenal had only conceded 11 in 24. United, who smashed eight past Forest last time out in the league, her old Dave Besant, make only one change, Spotted for skulls, one ginger ninja for another. Rodri Ryan Giggs fit for the bench after recovering from a groin injury, suffered by an injunction matter at home. Wenger makes three changes from his last league meeting. A 4-0 away win at Westham. Kionan Batiste suspended. Burkamp injured. Income bold Hughes in Kalu. Raymond Paula had the first effort of the game after good work from Anelka. But his effort was bread and butter for Schmeichel and the only thing missing was some Danish bacon. Arsenal on top early on won a free kick. Lee Dixon seen the big goalie off his line. A man who has been lobbed by Philippe Albert in the past. Dixon dinked it over Schmeichel and over the bar. Behave Lee. United's first chance fell to White Yorkie Bar after a chip cross from England's enemy number one Beckham. But Dwight's header was straight at Big Tash Seaman. The Gunners then created a golden chance as Paddy Vaseline Chespierra played a ball over the top to Overmars, but he hit it wide. Wait, ball! Gary Neville played him onside, but he'll get away with it as he's one of Fergie's cubs. Yorkie Barr had another effort, this time after he found space past Steve Bold. No, not the washing up powder. He shot at Seaman, who popped out the chocolate wrist to palm the ball, to leave it six yards out. But who was there to mop up? None other than Tony Adams. The tempo was starting to increase. Players flying into tackles, the ref allowing the game to flow. Proper order! David Seaman with his handlebar tash pulled off a great save from Roy. I hate everything apart from my dog, Keane. Seaman showing why he's England's number one. Are you watching Nigel Martin? Are you watching Ian Walker? Are you watching David James? Arsenal starting to come under a barrage of crosses. Cleared one, but it fell to Ronnie Pinball Wizard Johnson. Outside the box, his first touch took it into the box and the challenge of Raimondo Goldenlocks parlor. Johnson hit the deck and the ref pointed to the spot. A rare penalty awarded to United at Old Trafford. If you ask me, a very soft penalty. As soft as the pillow Gary Neville lays his head on at night after Ferguson tucks him into bed. Dwight, the price is right. York stepped up. A man who has hit the net 21 times so far this season. But he placed it wide. Big Dave Seaman give Yorkie Bar the bedroom eyes and the build-up to put him off. Old Trafford lets out a massive grunt. Ferguson fuming. Seaman again would deny another effort, this time by the artist, formerly known as Andy. Mr. Andrew Cole, who would send Steve Bold for a 60-degree wash, but Big Tash was there with a big save. Half-time, nil-nil. The second half got underway. 
Yorkie still on the pitch, despite no doubt Ferguson giving them the hairdryer, the straighteners, and the curlers' treatment at halftime. Two minutes into the second half, Nuwanku Kanu showed why Wenger coughed up 4.5 million for his services. Kanu, Santi, Nicky Butt, and Yapsham. And he was about to pull the trigger until Phil, the lesser Neville, made a great sliding block. He thought he had saved the day, but no, Philip. It ricocheted to Anelka, who fired it into the net. Arsenal lead at Old Trafford. Paddy soft chest Fiera showed great athleticism to glide past Roy Triggs Keane. Keane threw everything apart from the kitchen sink to stop him, eventually hauling him to the ground, and a kickout that HBK would have been proud of. Stop Fiera. Patrick used his arm to brush Roy away. Roy looked to throw a Barry McGuigan. Both men booked harsh on Vieira. Maybe the smell of Vaseline was to blame. Roy, a lucky man not to see red. Please don't tell him I said that. Phil, the weaker Neville, filling in for wee Dennis Irwin, clipped a ball into the box, and Andy, I mean Andrew, jumped ahead home. Tony Adams instantly flags his arm in the air as he's about to compete in Saturday Night Fever. He looks for offside, but no, Tony. Andrew was on, and your mocker bold was to blame. He's let you down. Ferguson does that glitchy jump to celebrate. Manchester United won, Arsenal won. Both managers then decided to spice things up. Paul Scholes coming on for Jesper Blomqvist, a man who hasn't seen his hands in years. Banger still battling with his zip on his coat, took off new boy Kanu. Reme Gard in replace of Nigerian Nwanku to try guard the Gunners' solid defence. Steve Bold and Tony Adams, a fine centre-half partnership, were having to use their Arsenal DNA to contain York and Cole. Just over 10 to go when Fergie chewing on his 83rd gum of the day. Replaced Nicky Butt with flying Rodri. I mean, Ryan Giggs. Wenger, still fighting with his zip, took off Nigel Winterburn for little RG. Nelson Vivas. Giggs was straight at Arsenal. He was hungry. He crossed low for Yorkie, who just had to tap it in, but no, wide. Not Yorkie's night, but at least he goes home to Katie Price. Replay show Seaman pulled off a great save. Obama's night was finished as he was replaced by Diwara, a man who roasted United on this ground last year, giving Gary Neville the horrors can now wash Canu's back in the bath. Paul Scholes was through on gold, but Steve Bold came across with a bold body block. Shouts of off, 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 but just a yellow. The full-time whistle sounded. Wenger still wrestling with this zip. God damn. Ferguson shakes his hand, but no love in that. The Gunners manager will be happier with a point. You can hardly see the yellow in Arsenal's kit as it is covered in mud, proper defending as Dixon and Cole dug deep. Kanu looks like a great addition. United will be frustrated as they created enough chances. Yorkies miss Penn. Hurry up back, Irwin, and show him how it's done. Keane lucky to stay on the pitch. After this tussle, United remain two points ahead of Arsenal, sandwiched in between them is Chelsea. It's finished here, Steve. Manchester United won. Arsenal won. Back to you in the studio. Wow, Mushman, what a game at Old Trafford. Uh, sounds like one of the best 1-1s ever in the Premier League. Iceman, you were at this game at Old Trafford. How did you get on on the night? I certainly was, Stephen. Um, I went as a young 11 or 12, I'm not too sure, but um, I certainly got wet. It was a famous soaking night in Manchester. 
somehow got tickets for the United end. We were up in the gods in the north stand, and to be honest, the pitch looked like a Subutio pitch. It was a, uh, it was. We were so high up. The game was intense. I remember feeling very, very nervous. It was a, it had a big game feel. I was very sad. Me, me hero Dennis Iceman Burkamp was injured, and obviously, I think Arsenal missed. Teeter in the centre of midfield. We had a uh, young Stephen Hughes to come in, and uh, the lesser said about him, the better, you know. But <laughs> it was a, it was a very, it was a very good game. United put Arsenal under serious pressure. I remember after United equalised, the roar of the crowd because it was my first ever Premiership game. I was quite young. Everybody started shaking and kicking the ground in the top stand, and it felt like it was moving. It was such a surreal experience. And when when Arsenal went one 0 up. I'd been pre-warned by my father not to celebrate as we were in, you know, the millionaire crowd. I remember getting a severe adrenaline rush as the ball hit the top of the net from Mr. Analga. But I don't think I don't think I let anything out. But I do remember leaving the ground with a uh, chewing gum stuck in my back. So I think somebody behind us made us sussed out we were gooners. It was a really good way to go to my first ever Premiership game. It was an intense game, and I think Arsenal were very lucky to get a point. But in hindsight, United were also lucky that Mr. Roy Keane wasn't sent off, picking on Patrick Vieira again. When's it going to end? Well, I don't think it is going to end. Um, it sounded like you had a, an entertaining evening, even though you're in the gods at Old Trafford. What what was the the atmosphere like uh, between the two sets of fans? I remember looking down at the Arsenal Arsenal supporters when the goal went in, and obviously being very envious and wishing I was there. They went absolutely nuts. Two sets of fans didn't like each other, and that famous song of uh, same old Arsenal always cheating rang out throughout the night. Even as an Arsenal player would get assaulted, the United fans would still sing it. And I'm not lying, when I close my eyes at night time and I've had a rough old day, I sometimes hear that song. There was, there was no love lost between the supporters and I think that's obviously lessened more recently in the last few years. But back then, there was an intense rivalry. And, you know, I remember my father rented a car driving from the hotel towards Old Trafford and just being sternly warned, do not show your colours. Brilliant stuff. Dan, this United eleven was pretty much full strength. They would obviously go on to do an historic treble at the end of this season. Were you watching this game thinking they've got the better of Arsenal? Arsenal obviously had just done the double the year before. On the night, United should have certainly won the game. But as far as getting the, the, the better of each other, it was February, a midweek game. There was still, you know, four months of the season to play. Both teams probably would have been happy a few days later just to say, look, hey, they didn't beat us. I think more importantly for United not to lose that game because they had been tanked in the Charity Shield and at Highbury earlier on that season. So it was really important for United not to lose it. The longer the game went on, Arsene Wenger, which he wouldn't have done too often throughout his Arsenal career, I wouldn't say he shut up shop, but he certainly made changes to make sure that Arsenal didn't lose the game. He still they still made sure to carry the a threat out wide and obviously Anelka was a world class talent but just the tone was set when Keanu got subbed with half an hour to go then obviously Ferguson went for Nicky Butt in the big games back then people forget how many games Nicky Butt played he was you know Scholes wasn't first choice Butt wasn't first choice but for those games Butt certainly was the man that Fergie turned to. Gigs not being quite fit I can't read too much into that because Jesper Blancfus was a very good winger overall just a really good game of football and it was very enjoyable to go back and watch it. Iceman, this would have been the first time that uh, a lot of Premier League and football fans caught a glimpse of Nuwanku Kanu. What did you make of his debut? I think he done very well. It was a difficult game for him. He was up against Janssen and Stam, which, you know, two top-class defenders, particularly Stam, obviously, you know, one of the best that we've seen. 
But I think for the goal in particular, he had a lovely bit of skill, dropped the shoulder. And uh, I think the ball ricocheted then out to Anelka. And Canu actually celebrated the goal as if he'd scored. But um, I think he, he had an impressive debut. Obviously, maybe made it tired in a heavy pitch. He went on to have a spectacular Arsenal career. And was definitely one of my favourite players growing up. Just his, his language style, the way he just he used to drag the ball. And, you know, defenders didn't know how to deal with him. And particularly that hat trick at Chelsea sticks in my mind. Unbelievable. You think he really reached his potential at Arsenal? I think so, yeah. He wasn't always a starter. You know, you know there was times he had to compete with, obviously, some of the Arsenal's best ever strikers, but when he came in, he done a superb job, and I, I just have, have really fond memories of him. And I didn't realise that I witnessed his debut up until this week, so <laughs> it's a, uh, it's, it's nice to think about that, you know. But um, I think he did, I think he, he did realise his potential. He won trophies. Maybe if he hadn't had the likes of Burkamp there over his top strikers, then he might have got more game time. There is a young man called Nicholas Anelka playing here for Arsenal. Uh, younger listeners might remember his time at, at Liverpool and Chelsea and Real Madrid. He's known as a man who, who is a bit of a sulk, the French media naming him Le Sulk. He's maybe a bit misunderstood, like a lot of uh, French talent. But there was a period of time here for Arsenal where he was just unplayable. He, he certainly was. In that 97, 98 season, he was unstoppable. And he was probably the hottest prospect in the world in terms of young strikers. He achieved great things at Arsenal in a very short spell but I think ultimately it came to a point where Real Madrid came calling and they had the financial clout and obviously one of the biggest teams in the world he decided to move on didn't go too well for him but I think from the money Arsenal received for him they got him for I think something like 900 grand they got big money for him for Real Madrid and Real by a training ground um, and Robert Perez so can't complain about that Absolutely not. Dan, another mad scuffle here between Vieira and Keane. A little bit of handbags at dawn, but Keane, if he connected with that uh, right hook that he tried to hit Vieira with, made it cause a little bit of damage. Is this the last great midfield rivalry that you can remember? If it is the, the biggest one. I know Gerard and Lampard would join the party in a few years' time, but you know, Keane and Vieira have their own documentary, like so. That's everything you need to know about that rivalry. <laughs> uh, it's a very enjoyable one as well. Vieira was a brilliant player. Manchester United would try and sign him. Strangely enough, a couple of seasons later, although it would, would have never really been on the cards, um, all the big clubs in Europe wanted them both. The following season, Keane's contract would soon be up in Bayern, Juventus. Madrid wanted him. The same would happen for Vieira, Juventus, Madrid's. They all wanted him as well. Two leaders, leaders of the changing rooms. And Vieira wasn't captain of Arsenal at this time, obviously, Tony Adams was. Um, but Vieira was the main man, the dominant player in the middle of the park. Keane was the main man in the engine room for United. He was a little bit more, I would say, volatile than Vieira, but Vieira had his moments also. They were sorely missed when they moved on. You know, they would. They would Leave the Premier League close to each other. Vieira leaving in the summer of 05. Keane getting released in November 05. The rivalry hasn't been the same since them two left. The clubs really, even even Wenger and Ferguson settled heads <laughs> and became became friends. That no one, you know, no one would have seen that coming. A real throwback to a good tussle. Just a brilliant, brilliant rivalry. And uh, Keane and Vieira set the tone. I seen uh, that the Romford Pele, Ray Parler, was playing right midfield in this game, and I heard a story about him the other day, which I'll just share with you. I quite enjoyed it. When he was at Middlesbrough, and Gareth Southgate was taking over, Gareth Southgate called all the players together, 
And um, he basically said to them, look, lads, I don't want to be called Gaz anymore or Southie or Gaty, um, you know, because I'm now the manager. And it was deadly silent. And Ray Parler piped up and said, what about Big Nose? <laughs> what a character. What a character. And uh, and I, I think you can you can guess what happened to Ray Parler. He never played for Middlesbrough again. I don't think that. Ray has any regrets about that. Hey, we all we all love a bit of Ray Mondo. In this week's Maverick of the Week, listeners, we're off to the West Indies. Get your VAT 19 and shot glass ready, because this week's Maverick is Dwight York. Dwight was discovered by Graham Turnup Taylor on a pre-season tour in the summer of 1989 for Aston Villa. Taylor quickly scooped up Dwight and brought him back to Birmingham. Dwight would spend the majority of the 1989-90 season in the reserves, learning how to adapt to the English top-flight style of play. And indeed, the weather conditions, which Yorkie was not used to. He made his debut in the Villa first team versus Crystal Palace in March 1990 and would never look back. For the majority of his early Villa career and under new manager Ron Atkinson, the way played as a wide man with Bailey and Atkinson and Dean Saunders, the preferred front two. He would be part of the Aston Villa squad that won the League Cup in 1994, although the did not make the match day squad against Manchester United on final day, in which Aston Villa won 3-1. The White formed a new strike partnership with Big Savo Milosevic, and the 1995-96 season would be Yorkie's best to date, where he thumped in a stunning 25 goals, helping Aston Villa also reach Europe, hammering Leeds United in the 1996 League Cup final, with York grabbing a goal on the day. It was these types of performances that would get the White attention from Manchester United, although it was not all plain sailing, with then-manager of Aston Villa, John Gregory, telling Yorkie he would shoot him if he had a gun for asking to leave the club. Gregory would also demand Andy Cole in exchange for York rather than cash. Oh, what could have been if that came true? However, York moved to United eventually for the total of £12.6 million. Dwight was a key player for Manchester United during the 1998-99, winning the treble and scoring in big games against Chelsea, Bayern Munich, Juventus, Inter Milan, Barcelona and Liverpool. York would also help Manchester United win the league in 1999-2000 and 2000-2001, hitting double figures in both seasons and scoring a famous hat-trick against Arsenal. However, alarm bells had already rung for Sir Alex Ferguson as the White York had requested a year off to celebrate winning the treble in the summer of 1999. He would also have a series of rips in Australia as United went down under for their summer tour with the White falling asleep in the bushes while out for a pre-season lap. He would leave Manchester United in the summer of 2002 with Sir Alex not even giving Dwight a squad number. A sad end for what was already a United legend. Dwight would go on to play for Blackburn Rovers, Birmingham City and Sunderland in the Premier League, as well as being a marquee signing for Sydney AFC of the Australian A-League, where he would also win Player of the Year and MVP. Good eye, mate. Dwight would prove his longevity and quality for his country also by captaining Trinidad and Tobago at the 2006 World Cup, where he played as a deep-laying midfielder. Dwight had his farewell retirement game for Sydney versus Everton in 2010, and he has went on to play many legend games and tours as all Mavericks should. He now works as an ambassador for Manchester United and is located in Dubai. His honours read as follows. 
615 club appearances, 198 goals. For his country, 72 caps and 19 goals. The White won three Premier Leagues, one FA Cup, one Champions League, one Intercontinental Cup, one League Cup, one Championship, one Australian A-League and one Caribbean Cup in the summer of 1989 for Trinidad and Tobago. What a competition that must have been. And in conclusion, Dwight was a brilliant goal scorer, a world-class talent, both-footed, a real character, a player who made fans and teammates happy. Every maverick should have as long a career as Dwight and with the quality that he showed throughout it. He will be well-remembered by fans, teammates, managers, pundits and anyone involved with the beautiful game. This week's Maverick, Stephen, is the White York. Take Brucey's bedtime bath, nice and warm, full of suds, a scented candle, a rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey don't give a dreams of passes to be. Dreams of passes to be. Okay, Dan, I've got the story ready. Can you just check that uh, Brucey's ready in his bath? Brucey, come on ahead. I'll give you a hand into the bath. You're battered and bruised after your uh, guest appearance on Gladiators last week. But tomorrow we've got a nice relaxing street face. So get in there. Get your back scrubber ready. Get the red ox out. Because tomorrow, you're Anton Deck's special guest on an episode of Chums with SMTV Live. So that's something to look forward to tomorrow morning. But we're up early, so no messing about after the bath. Straight to bed, and I'll read you a wee story here. Okay, Brucey. This week's story is by Ian Wright. As soon as the 1998-99 pre-season came around, naturally, I felt odd as I was starting it at West Ham. I didn't have a problem playing for West Ham. They were a London club. My brother Morris loved West Ham and they played a brand of football that was always pretty good. The so-called West Ham way, which Sam Allardyce used to poo-poo, but I understood what they were about. The first football kit I ever had when I was a kid was a West Ham kit because of my brother. He had number 10, I had number eight, which is where the love of number eight came from. Really, my earliest affinity had been with West Ham, so it wasn't like it can be when players join a new club and trot out, I've always supported whoever. I genuinely had loved West Ham since I'd been a little kid. When you first get involved with Harry Redknapp, he makes you feel like you're the greatest thing in the whole wide world. Sometimes you can't believe the welcome you get. Every time you see him, he's hailing you like you're his long lost brother. He talks to you like he couldn't be more pleased to see you. When he's talking about you, introducing you to the media or anybody else, it's all, oh, I can't believe Arsenal let him go. He's one of the greatest finishers in the Premier League history, still as sharp as ever. And we've got him. Three or four weeks later, normal life takes over and he'll blank you in the corridor or never quite find the time to meet you to talk something over, that sort of stuff. I like my time with the West Ham team because it was a dressing room with an unbelievable bunch of characters in it who kept things going for themselves. It was a nice place to be, but he was such a confusing manager to be under. One minute, he'd be making you feel wonderful. Then after that, he'd make you feel like crap and not give you so much as a clue why. Then, if you did something that apparently gave him a reason to freeze you out, that was your lot. After I started that season at West Ham, I was doing okay and I'd scored half a dozen goals in the first couple of months. 
I got on a couple of bus stops with the authorities, especially when I made a mess of the referee's dressing room after being sent off. But that was nothing new. I've been blasting off since I was a very young kid. And although my self-control was much better, I still lost it from time to time. However, I became disappointed with Harry pretty quickly. I'd been injured in a training game. And when I scored a goal against Newcastle in October 1998, I did a knee slide and felt as if something had gone. It didn't make any real difference, so I carried on playing and training, but I was always aware it was there. A couple of months later, we were training before we had an FA Cup third round game against Swansea, and something clicked in that knee. I said to Harry that I could feel something was seriously wrong with my knee. He was immediately convinced that I just didn't fancy it for whatever reason. Too cold, it was the cup, didn't want to play against Swansea because they were a lower league side. He got the right hump. He was mouthing off at me, really having a go, giving me all this nonsense about how I was having a cigar, how I was taking the you-know-what. I had a bit of a go back because I wanted to make the point that I genuinely had done my knee. But that was literally it. After that, I don't think he really spoke to me for the rest of my time at the club. I played some more games for West Ham, then got injured once more and came back again, and I scored three more goals. But both Harry and I knew it was finished. At the start of the next season... I got a call to go in and see him. And he said, yeah, Nottingham Forest want you on loan and you can go. That was it. I can't even remember him looking up at me properly. And that was the end of me at West Ham. I didn't see him for ages after that, quite a long time after I retired. And of course, once more, he's greeting me like I'm his best mate. But I don't find I've got that much to say to him. Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight. And don't let Gary Pallister bite. Now it's the part of the podcast where we pick another player in our Simpsons lookalike 11. We've already got Peter Schmeichel McBain in the bags. Last week, Mush added left-back Julian Dix, also known as Kearney. This week, it is Dan's turn to pick our seventh player. Dan, who have you went with? Yes, Stephen, thank you. And this week, I've went for Montgomery Burns and his lookalike, former Crystal Palace player-manager, Antilio Lombardo. Two men who are well-travelled with loads of experience, versatile and intelligent men. Both have had a number of roles throughout their lives and they will be a great addition to this team. Very versatile and will bring some real leadership qualities to the Simpsons 11. Does Otilio Lombardo have a, a special assistant, much like Montgomery Burns? Yes, he does. It's Thomas Brolin, former Swedish international who played with Lombardo at Palace. His daughter actually... Shot Lombardo as well, similar to Maggie Simpson shooting Montgomery Burns, but I'll have to confirm that later on, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. And does Brolin have dreams about Lombardo flying in through the window at night? Yes, he has dreams about Lombardo flying in through the window and uh, nightmares of Howard Wilkinson signing him for Leeds. Monty Burns has a teddy called Bobo. Does <laughs> Lombardo have a teddy, Dono? He does. He has a teddy called Dodo, Mush, and uh, they get on very well together, although Dodo is a teddy of few words. Lombardo takes over most of the conversation, mostly uses Dodo for sound transfer advice. So moving, leaving uh, Juventus to go to Crystal Palace, for example, great, great bit of business. So that is the end of the podcast this week, folks. But don't worry, we're back next week and we've got another special for you. So our last special was our France 98 review Next week, we're going back to 2001 to take a look at the Champions League. 
Dan, what have we got in store? Going back to look at the 2000-2001 Champions League campaign. Manchester United, Arsenal, Leeds United, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Hector Coopers, Valencia, AC Milan, Juventus, Bayern Munich. Still haunted by 99, but giving it another rattle. World-class players on show. Some great stories. Wonderful kits. Wonderful boots. Wonderful characters. And goals galore. Mosh, what are you looking forward to most about the Champions League 01? The rise and fall of Leeds United in the competition. I'd just like to say a massive thank you to the Iceman Paul Fingleton and his views about Arsenal. Iceman, will you come back on in the future? I can't wait. It'll be an absolute pleasure. Loved it, lads. Before we go, remember you can send in your football stories and your requests for the podcast. Just email us at jumperspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at, at jumperspodcast or our Twitter handle is at jumpersforgoal followed by the number four. We're also on Patreon, so if you want to support us, just head on over to patreon.com forward slash jumperspodcast. So it's good night from me and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush the Matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mush. And it's good night from the Iceman. Say good night, Iceman. Good night, Iceman. See you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 